Well, if you have your Bibles, open up to Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13 is where we're going to be. And if you don't have a Bible with you, that's all right. You can read along on the screens with us. We are continuing our series, and we only have a few more weeks left. So about three weeks left, including today, uh, of our series, None Like Him. We're looking at the life of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. And so we've now come to Mark chapter 13. And uh, what we're going to see today is a very interesting passage of Scripture that's very hard and difficult to understand, but we're going to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to give us wisdom to understand it. So would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your blood, for your sacrifice, as we just proclaimed through song. We just sang these words of truth about who you are and what you've done for us. And so now we turn our attention to your word we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would enlighten our minds to this truth. Help us to understand these words, your words, God. Give us that wisdom now we need and attentiveness we need. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I would say not many movies are worth watching more than once, right? But... We all have one, two, three, or four, however many, if you're a movie person, right? We all have a few movies that you just don't get tired of, right? And so for me, it's The Notebook. Just kidding. Uh, <laughs> totally kidding. Uh, no, for me, it's Star Wars, okay? So I could watch Star Wars all the time, any of them. They're all good to me. I love them. Even after Disney, Disney fight it. It's still good to me. Uh, but whatever the movie is for you... When you watch it for the first time, uh, you know, you may, you may get worried and really start to believe there for a minute that the bad guys are going to win. You know, like if it's an adventure movie or some kind of classic uh, epic story where there's villains, you may, you may really start, you know, the, the, the drama pulls you in, the plot pulls you in, you feel that tension, and there's a part of you that thinks, I don't know that this is going to end out okay. I don't know this is going to finish well. But in the end, what happens? It all works out, right? Those movies have good endings. The good guy wins. So when you watch it again, when you watch it that second time or that third time or that fourth time, you know how the story ends. And so you don't watch it in the same way, right? Like you don't watch it from the same perspective, this mysterious curiosity about you, this longing and desire to understand what's going to happen, is the good guy really going to win in the end? You know, you may watch a movie with your kids. They've never seen it before, but you've seen it, and they're worried, they're nervous about what's going on. Is the bad guy going to win? But you know. They don't know, but you know. You know, I think that the way we think about movies and, and watching them another time and understanding the plot the second time and understanding how the story is going to end, I think that's very similar to the way we think about the end of the world as Christians. You know, pop culture has really dominated most people's thinking about the end times, we call them, or the end of the world. You know, you think of the Mayan calendar. Remember that back in 2012? Remember the Mayans? They predicted the end of the world? Not, right? Remember the movies around that time? I think there was even a movie called 2012, and there was all these things. Maybe even you've seen some of the Christian movies who have tried to portray the end of the world. You know, 
Kirk Cameron, bless his heart, right? And so these pop culture things have dominated most of our thinking and most of what the world thinks about how the world may or may not end and when it may end has been driven by just movies or books or popular media, but not by the one who actually holds time in his hands. See, as Christians, we know how the story ends. And so while other people in the world may live frantically and anxiously about their thoughts and the end of the world and what's gonna happen and no clue, no idea, Christians, we know better. We've seen this movie before, so to speak. They may not know, but we should know in the end, everything is gonna be okay. Mark chapter 13, where we are today, is usually associated with the end of the world. Now, let me be very clear here. This is a very difficult passage to understand. This is a very difficult text to comprehend for us in our modern minds, but even just at all. And there are different views about how the end of the world will take place amongst Christians. And that's okay, by the way. It's okay if we have different views, as long as they are in accordance with the scriptures. There are several views that according to Orthodox Christianity, right, the traditional teachings of scripture that we hold to, it's okay to have different views about the times and the things and the sequences of events and all that. We don't know these things for sure. The Bible doesn't lay out everything nice and neatly in a chronological pattern. So, I want to point out that today in Mark 13, between especially verses 5 and 31, there's really three options of interpretation. Some people would say verses 5 through 31 of Mark 13 is exclusively only dealing with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in the year AD 70. Others would say that those verses exclusively deal with the coming of Jesus Christ again, a second time to earth. Some would say that both of those things are interwoven in the interpretation. Now, I'm going to intentionally upset some of you by not getting into all the possible details, mainly because we just don't have time. Now, if y'all want to stay here till three o'clock, we can do it, all right? Yeah. <laughs> but also because I think, I think truly there is a bigger picture here that we need to see. So our purpose today then is not to decipher each of these views about how the world may end, but see the bigger picture that I think Jesus is painting for his followers. I think it's Jesus's intention here to give them an assurance, an encouragement, a hope that in the end, everything's going to be okay. Even if you don't know all the details, it's going to be okay. Mark chapter 13, let's begin in verse one. And as he came out of the temple, that's Jesus, as he, Jesus, came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. So this, this disciple, unnamed, is marveling at the greatness of the temple, the temple that stood in the middle of Jerusalem, an object, a symbol of God's presence amongst his people, so important to the life 
of the Jews in the first century and, be, and before. And he's admiring the architecture. It's grand. It's great. It's beautiful. Verse 2, Jesus said, and Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. That's probably not the response that the disciple was hoping for. In fact, what Jesus says here is very shocking, right? I mean, he says, yeah, this beautiful temple, it's not going to last forever. Every stone is going to come crumbling down, which is why later four of these disciples have the courage to ask Jesus privately, what did you mean by that? Look at verse 3. So they go outside the city And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, which, by the way, would give you a wonderful view. So the Mount of Olives sits just outside of Jerusalem. So as they're on the slopes of the Mount of Olives, they could look over and literally see the big, magnificent temple there in the city of Jerusalem below them. Very beautiful to paint that picture in your minds. And so as they're sitting there, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, verse 4, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Now, here's the thing. You see, the disciples and all the other Jews at this point in history, they would have considered the temple to be so great, to be so invincible in a way, that if it was going to be destroyed, well, then that must mean the whole world was ending. So that's what they're thinking in their minds, that when that temple is destroyed, the presence of God there, that that must mean the end of the world. However, Jesus is not talking about the end of the world in those first couple of verses we just read because he's being very specific here. He's referring to the destruction of that temple, which is going to happen 40 years after what we're reading now. So in the year AD 70, quick little quick history lesson for us here. The Roman Empire was the greatest empire in the world at the time. Of course, uh, Palestine is a province within the Roman Empire where Jerusalem is located. And so in AD 70, the Romans have their way, and it's pretty sad what happens. So I want to quickly share some excerpts from you from different sources I've looked at. uh, The ESV, NIV Study Bibles, commentary by David Garland. I just want to share some of this with you real quick to help us understand the context of what happened in the year AD 70. So in AD 70, the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and that temple, just as Jesus said it would happen 40 years later. The Jewish historian Josephus gives gruesome accounts of what happened at the time when the Romans sieged Jerusalem. There there was famine, there was cannibalism, wholesale slaughter during the Roman siege. As we'll see in verse 14, a little bit later, there's a reference specifically to something called the abomination of desolation. What is that? Well, this was predicted in the book of Daniel, the prophet Daniel, many years before. And some Jews believe that in 167 BC, this was fulfilled because there was another powerful person named Antiochus IV who desecrated the temple. He also severely persecuted Israel during that time. But Jesus here obviously sees another fulfillment yet to come as he looks down while he's with his disciples on the Mount of Olives. At least here when Rome will destroy that temple 
about 40 years later in 70 AD. So that's the context we're dealing with here. Very specific, very historical. We know these things happened. So like I said, in verses 5 through 31, which we haven't even gotten to yet, of what we're about to read, some people think moving forward now that all of what's about to be said is referring to the Romans destroying the temple in 70 AD. Some think it's referring strictly to Jesus returning, which has not happened in world history yet, right? And then some think there's both aspects kind of interwoven and being addressed. Personally, and I'll tell you my view here quickly, I think verses 5 through at least 23, 5 through 23 are referring to the specific event in AD 70, not the end of the world. All right, so let's read all the way down to verse 23. Verse 5. And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains, but be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated for, by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Verse 14, but when you see the abomination of desolation, that's what we just referenced earlier, standing where he ought not to be. Again, this is probably the, the Romans coming in in AD 70, standing in the temple there before they destroy it, standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. In other words, it'll be hard to get out of Jerusalem. It's going to be hard to escape for them, right, as these things are happening because of those conditions, if so. Verse 19, for in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect, but be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand. So that's through verse 23. Again, like I said, my personal opinion on the matter is that that is specifically speaking to the events of AD 70. Jesus is truly warning his disciples they will have to flee out of Jerusalem for the, for the sake of their lives. Jesus is letting them know these things so they can escape, so they can survive. Now, from this point forward, Again, there are different opinions of the meaning of these verses and what exactly they're referring to, beginning in verse 24. A lot of scripture today, all right? 
We're going to try our best to get through it. Here we go. Verse 24. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And now, in verses 32 through 37, pretty much everyone agrees these verses we're about to read do refer to the second coming of Jesus Christ, which we have not experienced yet in world history. Verse 32, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Now, I know the really fun thing to do would be to talk about all these mysterious details and what they all could mean, and there's the proper times and places for that. We have deeper Bible studies throughout the year. Sometimes we get into these things. But I think a better way of approaching this to ask is what message, what message is Jesus telling us? Now, part of it is clearly a warning to the disciples to be on guard before the Romans come in and literally start destroying everything around them. But another part of it is a warning to all of us to be on guard, to stay awake, as Jesus says, because he is going to return. And we must persevere and endure to the end. So, one simple question that's not answered very simply, there's a lot of complexity here, but one simple question that I believe is the crux of this passage that we need to ask ourselves today, how can Christians persevere in this world to the end? How can we get through this world to the end? And when I say the end, by the way, ultimately, yes, we're talking about the end of time when Jesus Christ returns and gathers his church and we live forever with him in heaven. But also, on a more personal level, the end of your life. Because some of these principles apply to both. How can we be faithful to the Lord to the end? Whether the end is our own lives dying before he comes back or he coming back before we die, whichever happens first. Number one, I think we see Jesus telling his disciples here to be grounded in truth. Be grounded in truth. Notice the many opportunities for deception and false teachings that Jesus tells his disciples to watch out for. Look at verse five again on the screen with me. And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. 
And when he says astray, he's talking about theologically, doctrinally. See that you don't believe these false teachings coming from people out there in the world. Verse 21, look at this. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. So similar, I think, to the many voices in the first century proclaiming falsehood, our world today is overwhelmed with so many different voices claiming to know the true way to life and happiness, the right way that we should live and treat others. So many voices out there. Everybody and every organization and every news outlet has an opinion as to how humanity can best live their lives now for the peace of the world. And so in a society with so many different opinions and beliefs and ideas, how do we know what's true? How can we truly, truly decipher between what is true in this world, what we see on social media, what we see on our televisions, what we read in books and newspapers? Does anybody ever still read newspapers, by the way? Right? How do we know with all this overwhelming source of information? John MacArthur, in his book, Reckless Faith, talks about being able to know truth, and he compares it to federal agents who study counterfeit money. How do federal agents know when they come across a counterfeit bill? He says federal agents don't learn to spot counterfeit money by studying the counterfeits. They study genuine bills until they master the look of the real thing. Then, when they see the bogus money, they recognize it. I think that's a great way to think about our faith in the world today. I think that we must ground ourselves in what we know is true and become so familiarized with the scriptures and the words of our creator, God himself, the source of all truth. Man, if we can ground our hearts and our minds in his truth, then all the other voices out there in the world, when they come across our table, when they enter into our worlds through media or whatever, whatever medium or chain you're talking about, when they come into our lives, we can spot the phoniness. We can spot the fakeness and the, the untruth, the falsehoods. We know them because we know what God has said, not what other people have said. The only way we're going to be able to distinguish what's real and what's not, what's true and what's false, is by grounding ourselves in what we know is true, and that is only the Word of God. A perfectly good and sovereign God has given us everything we need to know about Him. How gracious is that, by the way? How awesome is it that our Creator didn't just create us and put us in this world and then just like, all right, good luck. He revealed Himself to us. He revealed himself to us in his word. He literally gave us a book to teach us and show us divinely who he is and what we need to know to worship him, to give our lives to him, and to live for him in this world he created. That's special. That's important that he did that for us. So I encourage you, be grounded in the truth. When you're hearing the fears and the anxieties of the world, don't get swallowed up in that. And it's good, by the way, to study other beliefs. We need to do that so that we can articulately challenge and speak to those appropriately and lovingly. 
I mean, just last semester here at Kernan, we had a world religions class where we looked at different world religions on Wednesday mornings and Wednesday nights, and we studied them and, and very in-depthly talked about their beliefs. Why did we do that? So that we can have good conversation with those in the world of different beliefs. But the first thing we must do and the first things we must devote ourselves to is studying God's word. Do not neglect to read your Bible. Do not neglect to dig deep into it through different aids and resources. Let the church help you. Let us help you study your Bible. We have resources and do it together is what I mean. Come to community group on Sunday mornings at 9.15. Get plugged in. Man, we go deep into the word of God together. We help each other understand it. We ask questions. We discuss it. And that's so important in the life of a Christian. Be involved in that. Study God's word so that you can know the counterfeit theologies when they come across. Number two, not only does Jesus tell his disciples to be grounded in truth, he tells them to be a faithful witness in all contexts. Be a faithful witness in all contexts. So we see two aspects to this. First of all, we should see persecution as opportunity for bearing witness. See persecution as opportunity to bear witness about Christ. Verse 9, again from Mark 13, Jesus said, But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And guess what? They did. Those disciples did suffer great persecution in the first century and over the course of church history, God has used the persecution of Christians to be the springboard, the catalyst to propel the gospel onward into new places for more people and new people. You know, Paul himself, he was so thankful. And this is hard to imagine, but he was thankful that he was locked up in prison because it gave him a chance to witness to his guards. Listen to this in Philippians chapter 1. Verses 12 through 14, Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Paul just couldn't keep silent, could he? He was so thankful that in his persecution, being imprisoned for his faith, for being a Christian, he was able to witness to others. He was able to lead them to Jesus. Verse 14, he said, and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. It's contagious. When you boldly pro proclaim Christ and you look at the challenges of the world and say, you know what, this is an opportunity for us to share about the love of Jesus. When you start doing that, other people recognize you're living that way, you're thinking that way, and it emboldens them. Think of all the other Christians and missionaries and church history throughout the years who have suffered deeply in ways that I hope we never understand or know for sure. And I want to bring up too, there is a distinction, by the way, between persecution around the world, even today in some countries, that is horrific and is violent. We should pray for our Christian brothers and sisters living in places where it's not even legal to be a Christian. It's not legal to, on, to own a copy of the Bible. 
So it's different for us when we use that word persecution. I always want to clarify that. But still, nonetheless, socially speaking, relationally speaking, there are great challenges in our own country today for being a Christian. In our part of the world today, it's easy to turn on the news and hear all the attacks against our Christian worldview, against the truth of God's word, perhaps specifically. You know, and it's easy to kind of throw our hands up in disgust and just say, oh, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. The world's terrible. But I'm not just so sure that that should be our first reaction, our first response. What if instead, when we encounter all the fears and anxieties of the world, we don't respond with the same equal level of fear and anxiety? What if we respond calmly, lovingly, attentively with the hope of Jesus Christ? What if we look at opposition against Christianity as opportunity to share the love of Jesus? For most of us, that's not going to happen on large scales. It's going to happen very personally in your life with someone that you know, a family member who doesn't believe, a coworker who is of another religion or doesn't believe, just a friend who's going through a hard time, and maybe they know that you're a Christian. They've even poked fun at you a little bit about it. But look at the opportunity you have to be a faithful witness as Christ told his disciples they must be no matter what circumstance or what challenge comes their way. May we engage with the lost world, not just point fingers at them and say, I told you so. May we engage lovingly with them and show them the redemptive love of Jesus. It's not just in spite of opposition that Jesus grows his kingdom. Many times it's through opposition. So that brings us to the second subpoint here. If we're going to be faithful witness in all contexts, well then don't put limits on the gospel. Look again at verse 10 of chapter 13. Jesus told his disciples, the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. Now the NIV and the ESV, or the NIV study Bible notes that this is, means to all people without distinction, in other words. So to all types of people around the world, the gospel needs to go forth. Of course, we would never say that we are putting limits on the gospel, but in our thinking of who we need to share the gospel of Jesus with, are there some people that we're overlooking? Are there some who we are ignoring? Are we really trying to get to know our neighbors? And when I say neighbors, again, I mean anybody in your circle of influence that God has put you in. Are we really trying to engage with them and get to know them because we know they don't know Christ, but yet we just walk past them in the hallway at work or we don't talk to them and we never even make a chance or not give us ourselves a chance or an opportunity to actually talk about the love of Christ with them? Or do we only share the gospel with people who look like us and talk like us and think like us and have similar interests as us? People who are in your circles of influence who are nothing like you may be the very people whom God has put you there for. And if they come to know Christ through your witness, you have more in common with them, even though on the outset you don't, you'll have more in common with them than a family member who doesn't know Jesus. Don't put limits on the gospel. It's for all people without distinction. All people, all places, wherever you are. Number three, this morning, I think that we see in this difficult text to understand, we see a beautiful truth. We should rest in the faithfulness of God. Rest in the faithfulness of God. There is much uncertainty concerning the details of the chronological end of the world. And that's okay, by the way. 
I just want to say very clearly, and I talk about this and discover Kern in our new members class, this is a third tier issue. And what I mean is the details of the end times is a third tier issue. Now, Jesus returning is a first tier issue. We know he's coming back. We know he's going to gather his people and we're going to live with him forever. But the dates and the times and the ways and all the how that that's going to happen, it's okay if even in this church we agree, or agree to disagree on those things. That's okay. As long as we don't make them a point of controversy. It's okay to discuss these things, but let's keep them in priority where they belong. We're not supposed to know everything. We don't need to know everything. We don't have to try to predict everything. What's important is that we trust that God has this figured out. In verse 31 of Mark 13, Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. We need to trust God's sovereign plan that he knows the best way for this world to end. So instead of just driving ourselves bonkers and crazy, trying to imagine all the possibilities, and let's just rest in the faithfulness of God. He's got it figured out. But not only does God have a plan that he is unfolding for this world, that same truth is true for you personally. He has a plan that he's unfolding for your life. Look at Philippians 1, 6 with me on the screens. Paul says, and I am sure of this, I'm sure of this, he says, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's what we need to know. You can take that to the bank. Paul says he is sure there's no uncertainty here that the God who saved you will sanctify you. He will shape you into the person you need to be for your good, for his glory, until the day he returns. You can count on that. In the end, it's not our faithfulness, though. Do you see that? It's not your faithfulness. That's the power to that engine. It is the faithfulness of God to us that will keep us in his hands. Our faith is guaranteed to fail at times. But his never will. His love endures. Psalm 107 verse 1 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. It's a well that never runs dry. As soon as you think it might be up, it's not. You know, I had to return something to Target yesterday, and I'll just admit, I love Target. They just do a good job, you know? It's so easy. I was in there like for five seconds at the return desk. It's so simple. It's so easy to return. They just welcome it back. It's almost like they want you to give you the stuff back. It's kind of weird. But here's the thing. God doesn't return what he has already purchased. And he has purchased you with the blood of Jesus. If you have put your faith, not in this world, not in yourself, but truly in Christ, I want you to know this, you are his forever. And there's nothing that can separate you from the love of Christ. So in the midst of this crazy world, as difficult as it is, as severe as the challenges may be that come your way, we must, as believers in a faithful God, rise above the noise. 
rise above the noise and find ourselves resting in a good and sovereign God who is always faithful to us and will never let us go. Rest in the faithfulness of God himself. That is powerful. There's one more thing before we end today. Live in light of eternity. I think Jesus is telling us here to live in light of eternity. Verse 33, what does he say? He says, be on guard, keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. You know, just as the disciple in verse one we read at the beginning was, he was overly enamored by the grandeur and the magnificence of the temple. And I think that's very telling of our own hearts. We can look at this world and we can look at the things that we have and the things around us and just be so in awe of all these magnificent man-made things. But the truth is that the greatest and most magnificent man-made objects in this world will not last forever. Your most treasured thing, possession in this world, one day will cease to exist. Whatever it is, whatever heirloom it is, whatever nice fancy trinket you have, it will not last forever. Everything will be destroyed either by humans over time or by God himself at Christ's return. So don't get too attached. Don't get too attached to the things of this world. You know, think about the temple itself. The temple in Jesus' day, it was such a prominent object in Israel's history. It represented the presence of God on earth. But Jesus refers to himself as the new temple. And later on, the apostle Paul refers to God's people as the temple. So the need for and the use of this temple that we see in this passage today in Jerusalem, it's fulfilled. The need for it has been completed when Jesus says these words. When he dies on the cross, it's, that temple is obsolete now. But do you see why? You see, the whole point of the temple was to represent God's presence with his people, to give them access to him. But now, now God's presence lives inside us. You are the temple, Paul says. We have direct access to him through Jesus. You know, before the temple would be destroyed in AD 70, something inside of it was destroyed much sooner. The curtain. A very tall, large curtain that separated the rest of the temple from the Holy of Holies, which represented the very presence of God. When Jesus died on the cross, that temple curtain was torn in half from top to bottom, signaling a new age had come. It was the dawning of a new era. We now have direct access to the holy presence of God, not by anything that we've done, not by us trying to be better at religion, trying to be a good person, trying to fill our heads with all the right knowledge. There is nothing we could do to enter the presence of a holy God, but when Jesus paid the penalty for your sin on the cross, when you embrace that, and you turn away from yourself 
and trying to earn God's love and approval through your own merit and your own willpower. When you turn away from yourself, you deny yourself and you look to him and what he has done in your place. You get direct access. You get a relationship with God forever. We have been unfaithful. but Jesus has been faithful. He gave his life for ours. But this isn't the final stage in God manifesting his presence. One day Jesus will return. He will establish the presence of God on this earth forever and ever, fully, completely, with no restraint. It's hard to imagine a world like that. But that's the exact one that's on the way. Everything sad will come, will come untrue. Everything wrong will be made right. And we will live forever with God on a new earth, filled with his presence, just as he intended at the beginning of time when he created us to love him and live for him. But we'll be able to do that freely with no restraint, with no sin or desire to sin in us. And so what does that mean for your life now? In the year 2022, as long as you have breath in your lungs, what does that mean? It means that you live in light of where you're going. You live with eternity on your heart and mind. It's like a movie that you've seen before. You know in the end that it's going to be okay. That it all works out. And though you may not know the details, that's okay. Though we may not understand the mysteries of some of these things, it's all right. Because what we do know is what God has told us that we must know. He is faithful to the end. He will return. And he will establish his kingdom forever. We live as those who know that's going to happen. That means we don't treasure the things of this world. We know our treasures in heaven. That means that we live as citizens of a heavenly kingdom, not an earthly one where leaders in power come and go. We live as neighbors who truly love others and want them to experience that same eternal presence of God forever. This isn't us living with our heads stuck in the clouds. Living in light of eternity is one of the most practical ways you can live. Because it reprioritizes everything you do. You now see your life through a new lens. You see the world as it was meant to be seen by God himself. You see the hearts and the souls of people. You don't over overlook others. You see when they need your help, you're there. When they need the truth of Christ, it's there. You give it to them. You see your life becoming more and more less about you and more and more about Jesus himself. It's very practical to live in light of eternity. It becomes important to you, and you align your life accordingly. You know, two days ago here in this room, we celebrated the life of Miss Ruth Steinhauer. For those of you who don't know her, uh, she was a very sweet and precious member of this church. She was 93 years old. She came every week. She was here in worship. She came to our Wednesday morning senior adult Bible study every week, book in hand, ready to go, taking notes, writing down prayer requests. She died the Sunday after Easter. And when she was found, she was sitting in her chair Sunday morning when her ride to church came. She was sitting there dressed and ready to go to worship. 
and I shared this Friday at the funeral, that I think the way Miss Ruth passed away is very symbolic of the way she lived her life. She was faithful to the end. She was dressed and ready to go to worship. And the worship service she got that day was much, much greater than the one she would have got here. And I just wonder, can we ask ourselves that same question? Are you dressed and ready to go? Are you living your life faithfully to the end? Are you detaching yourself from the love and admiration of the things of this world and reattaching and realigning your priorities in your life to the love of God that he's already poured out for you and given to you? Are you living in light of eternity? Are you resting in what we know is true, the faithfulness of a God who will never let you go? Does your life exemplify that love for God and for others? Are you dressed and ready to go? Are you going to be faithful to the end? I think the answer must be, Lord, please help us be this way. Please help us live that way. Not because we're just going to try harder, but because he, he is faithful to the end. If that's something you need to ask yourself today, please do that before leaving. Do I know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior? Have I truly surrendered my life to him? Have I believed in his name that he is the son of God who came to earth and died on the cross in my place as my substitute? And I'm tired of living for myself. I'm tired of living for this world. I'm tired of thinking that in the end, there's this great mystery that maybe or maybe not, I've been good enough to please God and so I don't really know when I die what's gonna happen. If that's you here today, I want you to know that you can have the assurance of salvation. You can trust Jesus has done everything for you. He's everything you could never be. He lived the life you couldn't live. He died the death you should have died. And because he rose from the grave, there is certainty, there is certainty that he can hold on to you forever and you can have eternal life. Maybe you're a Christian here today and the truth is you just need to reprioritize. You need to cry out to God, confess the sins and the areas of your life where you need realignment, where you need renewal and you've been a little too attached to this temporary world. And I encourage you as we pray now, cry out to the Lord and confess those sins and ask him to realign your heart so that you can rest in his faithfulness, guard, be guarded in truth, and truly live in light of eternity. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we are so thankful for who you are, for what you've done, and what you're going to do. Lord, you are the perfect holy God who gave up his life for us, and you're the perfect holy God who will reestablish your kingdom on this earth forever. And Lord, I pray that every person in here, God, that we have a desire not just for heaven, but for you. So Lord, may you, may you alone be the reason 
be our greatest desire to realign our hearts, to surrender our lives. Jesus, not just for what you can give us, but for you yourself. Lord, may we be in love with you and want that eternal relationship forever. May your goodness and grace leave us with a sense of reverence and awe that we just can't get enough of. So Holy Spirit, turn our hearts. Turn our hearts to you. And let us find the security of your faithfulness and your truth to the end to be our most motivating factor in the way we live our lives now. So Lord, would you give us this great hope? Give us the perseverance we need to be faithful to the end. It's in Jesus' name we pray.